Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. You're listening to Dr. John Bergsma, Professor of Theology at Franciscan University of Steubenville, giving a talk entitled The Bridegroom, Jesus, Easter, and the Song of Songs. This talk is part of the Holy Week series at Franciscan University of Steubenville. Okay, um, I have about 50 handouts, which I thought would be about twice as much as needed uh, for tonight. Um, So maybe folks can share, like uh, two persons to a handout or something. Um, and uh, who has their Bibles? Oh, not, not bad for a Catholic crowd. Okay. If you got your Bible, uh, open up to Song of Songs and share with your neighbor because um, we're going to be looking at some, some texts. So I'll read them. Uh, for those who didn't buy, buy or bring excuse me, their Bibles. So, I'd like to begin with a question about what is the Song of Songs? I mean, what is this kind of crazy book? Uh, To some, it's just a a collection of pickup lines. Uh, So you gentlemen can try this out down at Sandella's, you know, you see that uh, cute underclass woman. Sipping on her latte, you can come up and say, uh, excuse me, miss, Uh, I couldn't help but notice that your hair looks like a flock of goats descending from Mount Gilead. (laughs) Or if you're a little more forward, you can try, hey, baby, did you know your nose looks like the Tower of Lebanon? (laughs) Works every time, guys. Presses a Franciscan girl. She, she finds you're suave and biblically literate, which is what every good Catholic girl is looking for in a future life mate. So, but seriously, what is this? What is this book? You know, some people have called it the most profane book in the Bible. Uh, a couple of years ago, some of my students uh, were out at Tim Hortons and uh, were getting coffee and doing a little PBS One homework, and uh, uh, in walks this uh, crusty old uh, village atheist type personality uh, with his pickup truck from Wintersville or something, and he strides into Tim Hortons and sees these Franciscan students looking at the Bible, and he starts a snarky conversation with them, and starts, uh, you know, making arguments against God and this kind of thing. And of course, they're trying to love him back and just, you know, be, fr- be his friend. That just makes him more frustrated. And finally, he grabs his coffee and he's heading out the door of Tim Hortons and he spins around before he leaves and he says, one more thing, you want to know the dirtiest book in the Bible? It's the Song of Songs. And he strides out and jumps into his pickup truck. <laughs> out back to Wintersville. So... <laughs> That's the impression that some people have about, you know, the Song of Songs as a kind of a profane book that, you know, talks about things that maybe shouldn't be talked about in the Bible, and somehow the bumbling Jews or maybe the bumbling Christians slid it into their canon, not understanding what it was really about, and, uh, and so there it is, right in the middle. Um, of course, I disagree with that uh, impression, or that perspective. 
Uh, I tend to agree with the uh, rabbis that said, uh, one of the rabbis, in fact, Rabbi Akiva, said, the, uh, the whole Bible is holy, but the Song of Songs is the holy of holies. And I think that's right, uh, properly understood. So what is this book? Well, this book is, a, is essentially a collection of love songs that have been put together to have a kind of literary order, as we're going to see. Okay. Um, like, uh, like, you know, the musical Cats? I don't know if anybody ever seen this. Uh, you know, it doesn't have much of a plot, um, but it's a collection of poems about cats, and it's put together in a kind of order. And it does have some kind of uh, system to it. Um, or so they tell me. Um, Song of Songs has more of a system, I think, uh, but it's, it's a collection of, of love songs that have been put together with an order. And how does it fit into the canon? How does it fit into Scripture? Well, actually it fits very well, because if you think about it, the, uh, the Bible starts with uh, a bride and a groom in a garden with a wedding in Genesis 1 and 2. And the Bible ends with a bride and a groom. It's, it's the Lamb and the heavenly Jerusalem, but they're bride and groom in a garden, garden city, uh, in the last two books of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22. So you got bridegroom, garden, bridegroom, garden at the two bookends of Scripture. And then right in the middle of the canon, you have this extended love poem that is mostly about a bride and a groom cavorting in a garden. So it's, uh, it's symmetrical, and it fits into what we might call a nuptial theme throughout Scripture. Okay? A nuptial theme in which God is continually wooing mankind as his bride to himself. Now the author of the Song of Songs um, it has often been thought to be Solomon, and I wouldn't rule that out. Perhaps the book was composed by Solomon or parts of it were written by him. Um, it's also quite possible that it is called the Song of Solomon because it is about Solomon rather than by him. And certain features of the book make more sense if you understand it as being composed about Solomon, kind of in his honor. And so the author is unknown. Um, but I think there's good reason to believe that it comes, around, it comes from around the Solomonic era, from the 900s B.C., um, because certain geographical things that are mentioned in the book seem to indicate that Israel was very large at the time of its writing, and that was only true during the time of the Solomonic Empire. Now, it's important to see the structure of the uh, Song of Songs, and I think it has a rather elegant seven-part structure. Here's where the outline would be helpful. Um, that's balanced. It's what we call in uh, Scripture studies a chiasm. That is a kind of literary structure where the first and last elements correspond. The second and the second to last elements correspond. The third and the third to last correspond, etc., down to a center point. And that's basically what we see in the Song of Songs. The, um, the opening and the closing of the book are colloquies, C-O-L-L-O-Q-U-Y, a colloquy, uh, plural would be an I-E-S on the end. 
So we have an opening colloquy in chapter 1, verse 1 through 2, verse 7, and a closing colloquy in chapter 8, verses 5 through 14. Now a colloquy in a play or some other piece of literature is a talking together. That's what uh, colloquial means in Latin. It means uh, speaking together. And these are parts um, of uh, the Song of Songs where all the players have a speaking role. There are three basic players in the Song of Songs, and so it could be, um, it could be performed um, as like an oratorio or, um, uh, say, a musical play, so to speak. And uh, the major roles are these, the bride, the groom, and the chorus, which is made up of the girlfriends of the bride. Okay? So that's your, your basic uh, uh, roles. So it's like a Greek drama where you have you know, the orchestra right, uh, that, that chimes in. And here the, the orchestra are uh, the girlfriends of the bride. And then the two major speaking roles are the, uh, the bride and the groom. So the opening of the Song of Songs is like this. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, Oh, that you would kiss me with the kisses of your mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, the maidens love you. Draw me after you. Let us make haste. The king has brought me into his chambers. All that's in the voice of the bride. She, she sings that. Then the chorus chimes in and says, We will exalt and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. And then the bride speaks again. I am very dark, but comely, O daughters of Jerusalem. And she goes on to describe her beauty and um, uh, her uh, shepherding um, and the flocks that she used to tend. And then in verse 8, the groom speaks for the first time. And in response to a question about where he is shepherding his flock, he says, If you do not know, O fairest among women, follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your kids beside the shepherd's tents. I compare you, my love, to a mare of Pharaoh's chariots. Uh, you're, that, by the way, is a, is a little joke there. Um, uh, a mare of Pharaoh's chariots. Okay, uh, Pharaoh did not use any mares to draw his chariots. He used stallions alone. Okay? Because if you mixed a single mare in with the chariots of Pharaoh's, uh, the stallions of Pharaoh's chariots, uh, all those war horses would suddenly become disinterested in combat and solely interested in that one mare, okay? So I compare you to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots means you drive me wild uh, with passion. You're causing chaos, okay, in, in the ranks. Um, that's, what, uh, that's what the groom means here. Your cheeks are coming with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. We'll make you ornaments of gold studded with silver. So it goes back and forth between the bride and groom in this opening colloquy as the, bride, the groom describes how beautiful the bride is and the bride responds, speaking of the love of the groom. And then finally, uh, the colloquy ends in verses Chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. Oh, that his left hand were under my head and that his left, that right hand embraced me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the deer of the field, that you stir not up nor awaken love until it please. 
Now, that, those last couple of lines, this uh, adjuration formula where she says, I adjure you, uh, do not awaken love until it please. This is a double meaning in Hebrew, okay? What we sometimes call in English a double entendre, um, a, 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 a phrase that has a, a more than one sense to it. And uh, this can mean one of two things. Um, I adjure you, daughters of Jerusalem, stir not up nor awaken love until it please. This could mean don't arouse the passions of love before the proper time, okay? Which would mean prior to marriage then, okay? Be careful not to awaken the passions of love before there is um, the, the proper time and place for their uh, experience. Um, on the other hand, in Hebrew, this can also mean do not stir up or awaken the loved one until she please. Okay? Now that's significant because later in uh, chapter uh, 7, in chapter 7, verse 6, the, uh, the groom will call the bride the loved one. Okay? He will just call her by the Hebrew ahava, which just means love. Um, um, how fair and pleasant you are, O oh love, he says there. So, if you, that you stir not up nor awaken love until she please. Remember that in Hebrew, there's just masculine and feminine. There's no neuter gender. And so literally in Hebrew, this is all in the feminine, that you stir not up nor awaken love until she please. This can also be a self-reference to the bride. In other words, don't wake me up until the proper time. Now, in the context of the Song of Songs, when you read it together as a unity, uh, what is she speaking about? Well, the, the book of the Song of Songs has a very dreamy feel to it, and it's composed largely of dream sequences, as we're going to see. And so the, the basic premise of the book of Songs is the bride is dreaming. She's having pleasant dreams of her upcoming wedding, and she doesn't want the bridesmaids to wake her up. Okay, she's enjoying this. So don't wake me up until the wedding. That's the basic sense of it. Okay? So two senses to this famous formula. Do not uh, stir up nor awaken love until she please. This is repeated three times in the book of, of uh, the song um, at, uh, at critical junctures in the book. Okay, so that was the opening colloquy, which has that double meaning at the end. And then the second section of the Book of Songs is the bridegroom's invitation to elope. Uh, this is chapter 2, 8 through 17. It's probably not something that happened in historical time. Again, it's probably a daydream um, of the bride. Uh, it begins in 2, 8. The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes, leaping upon the mountains, bounding over the hills, and uh, it continues, the basic plot is uh, the bridegroom comes leaping and jumping uh, like a stag out of the hills down to the garden where the bridegroom is. And then he uh, peeks through the lattice of the garden and he speaks to her and says, come away with me, my dove, uh, arise, my love, my fair one, come away. Your voice is sweet, your face is comely, let us catch foxes in the vineyards, etc. Um, and, uh, and, and then the colloquy, uh, excuse me, this is not a colloquy, but then the, uh, the invitation uh, comes to an end as uh, uh, the bride says, until the day breeze and the shadows flee, turn, my beloved, be like a gazelle, 
or like a young stag upon rugged mountains. So this, it's a beautiful poem of um, the bridegroom coming down in springtime and inviting the bride to come away. It's a poem that we read um, about two to three days before Christmas in the uh, cycle of the lectionary every year, around December 22nd, um, uh, thereabouts, give or take a day. Why would we read a poem of springtime and of lovers in the vigor of health a few days before Christmas? Seems kind of counterintuitive, doesn't it? And yet the church fathers found it appropriate because in this talk of the bridegroom bounding down from the hills, they saw the Word of God, the second person of the Trinity, coming down from the heights of heaven to wed his divine nature to our human nature. So Christmas was understood as the great wedding of man with God, the great union of divine and human natures in one flesh. Okay? The one flesh union of human and divine. So there's a nuptial aspect to Christmas, and so this, um, uh, this nuptial poem of um, uh, Songs chapter 2 uh, was placed into the lectionary at that time. Now throughout this poem, the, um, the bridegroom in chapter 2 is referred to again and again as my beloved. So in verses 8 and 9, we see this. The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes, leaping upon the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle. Again, in verse 10, my beloved speaks and says to me. Now, to get the full impact of that, you have to be aware that in Hebrew, the word beloved is nothing other than the word David. Oh, you've probably heard that word before. Because it's somebody's name. That's right. The, the most prominent king in Israel's history, uh, his name is the word beloved. And that had a great deal of impact on how the Song of Songs was read by the ancient Israelites. When the ancient Israelites lost their Davidic king and were taken away into Babylon, and began to meditate on the scriptures in a state of exile, they looked at the Song of Songs and it struck them with great impact that the bridegroom throughout is called my David, my David. And they began to think, this is a poem not simply about human love, but about God's love for us. And this bridegroom is nothing other than the David who is to come the son of David who will return one day, sit on the throne once more, and restore us to our kingdom. In time, that son of David became referred to simply as the Meshiach, which means the one smeared with oil, which comes to us in English as the Messiah. So the Song of Songs began to be read as a Messianic book, a book about the coming Messiah, the coming bridegroom Messiah, who had wed himself to Israel. Just as David in 1 Kings 5 became king over all the tribes of Israel when the elders of Israel came to him and said, We are your bone and flesh. Make therefore a covenant with us and become our king. 
In those words, we are your bone and flesh, they echoed the words of Adam to Eve, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. That language of Adam, which was actually Israelite wedding language, which formed the marriage between himself and Eve, echoed by the elders of Israel when they came to make a covenant with David that he should be their king. And so the covenant between the people of Israel and David, their king and David's heirs, always had a nuptial aspect to it, a nuptial dimension. The king was the bridegroom, the people were the bride. Now let's move along in the Song of Songs. Uh, When we get to the third section of the book, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, this is the first explicit dream sequence in the book. We read in chapter 3, Upon my bed by night... I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. I will rise now and go about the city in the streets and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. Now again, she's not actually doing this in historical time because no young woman of high birth in ancient Jerusalem is going to go wandering around the streets uh, of Jerusalem at night for the same reason that you're not going to go wandering around La Belle at night um, you know, in uh, 2014. Um, just not smart. So, but she's dreaming. That's the point. And, and the dreaming aspect becomes more apparent in the parallel to this dream sequence, which is in chapter 5. But it says, I sought him, but found him not. Called him, but gave no answer, etc. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I passed them. When I found him whom my soul loves, I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house, into the chamber of her that conceived me. And then it concludes, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the deer of the field, that you stir not up nor awaken the loved one until she please. Okay? So she's sleeping. She's having this pleasant dream of finding her beloved and embracing him. And she says, don't wake me up. Uh, until it's time for the wedding. So that's the first dream sequence. And that corresponds to the section, um, uh, chapter 5, verses 2 through 610. Chapter 5, verse 2 begins, I slept, but my heart was awake. Hark, my beloved is knocking. Okay, I slept, but my heart was awake. The heart was the seat of thought. Uh, for the ancient Israelites, we would say my mind was awake or my brain was awake or something like that. But uh, what she means was that she was physically asleep, but she, her mind was active. In other words, she was having a dream. And then in her dream, hark, my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister in love, my dove, my perfect one. He's knocking on the door and uh, she doesn't want to get up at first. Um, but then she hears him rattling the doorknob and then she decides to get up. And uh, so she gets up, and her fingers are dripping with liquid myrrh, so apparently she's been sleeping with her hands in bowls of perfume, um, which is another reason why you could tell it's a dream. You know, all kinds of this unrealistic stuff happens in the Song of Songs, just how you know these are dream sequences. So, um, you know, uh, she opens to her beloved, and he's turned and gone already, and then she goes out and she wanders about the city, which, of course, no young woman is going to do back in there, wandering around the city at night. So, but you do these things in your dream, right? You, you're having a dream, and uh, you're sitting in English class, but you're in your pajamas. You're like, oh, no, I'm in my pajamas. You're like, oh, I'm so embarrassed. You know? 
So you go to the window, you jump out of the window and fly home, you know, to, <laughs> to, to get dressed. And, uh, and then you get dressed, and then you can't find a ride back to campus, and then all these kinds. So you, you jump into somebody's car that you don't even know this person, and you just drive back. So you do all kinds of things in dreams that you wouldn't do in real life, and that's what, what's going on in the Song of Songs with these dream sequences. So the first and second dream sequence bracket the center of the book, and the center of the book is a grand scene of Solomon's wedding um, uh, in uh, chapters uh, 3, verse 6 through 5, 1. Um, it begins with a vision of Solomon being carried in his bridal litter up uh, into Jerusalem from the east. What is that coming up from the wilderness like a column of smoke perfumed with myrrh and frankincense with all the fragrant powders of the merchant? Okay. So he's got so much Stetson smothered all over his body that it's creating a cloud that's visible okay, <laughs> from several miles away, you know, from down in Jericho as he's being carried up into Jerusalem. And you can smell him on the wind. It's like, that's Solomon coming. <laughs> Behold, it is the litter of Solomon. About it are sixty mighty men with mighty, uh, the mighty men of Israel. These are his bodyguard, all belted with swords and experts in war, each with his sword at his thigh against alarms by night. So this is a personal bodyguard of the king. Be like the equivalent of the Secret Service. They're draped in black robes. They got swords and spears hidden in the robes, little things in their ear, you know. <laughs> king Solomon made himself a palanquin from the wood of Lebanon. He made its posts of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple. It was lovingly wrought within by the daughters of Jerusalem. So this was an enclosed palaquin or litter, and I believe it carried both the king and his new bride. Be, go forth, O daughters of Zion. Behold King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding and the day of his gladness of heart. So it's his wedding day being carried up into Jerusalem with his bride. And then I think the key to this whole sequence is to understand that in chapter 4, you go inside the litter now. Okay, The camera has been watching Solomon come in, up into Jerusalem. Now the camera goes inside the litter, and you hear the dialogue between Solomon and his bride on their wedding day. And um, uh, here's Solomon with all his uh, suave lines here. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats moving down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins. Not one of them is bereaved. You got all your teeth, baby. It's so beautiful. <laughs> Can tell you didn't play hockey. Your lips are like a scarlet thread. Your mouth is lovely. That reminds me of uh, the, the, what was it, the Oak Ridge Boys uh, with, their, with Elvira. Lips like cherry wine. You know? Okay. Lips are like a scarlet thread. Your cheeks are like uh, halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David built for an arsenal whereon hang a thousand bucklers, all of them shields of warriors. In case he's getting into that martial imagery, you know, that women love that, talking about tanks and fighter planes <laughs> and stuff like that. It's the key to a woman's heart. They're all World War II buffs. Seriously, the, the, 
the neck like the Tower of David, what's going on here is uh, the Tower of David was a defensive tower within Jerusalem. And when Jerusalem was under siege, the, the commandos, okay, uh, David's mighty men, would go up into the tower to defend the city and they would hang their shields outside the tower. And the shields of each warrior had unique devices. I mean, this is like ancient heraldry. You know how knights would have their coat of arms on their shield so you could identify, oh, that's the black knight or that's the, the green prince or the brown duke or whatever, you know, <laughs> whatever you have. Uh, you know, various uh, aristocrats. Well, you know, mutatis mutatis, same basic idea. These, um, these shields would be highly polished and decorated and would have the insignia of these different mighty men on them. And they would glint in the sunlight and it was a beautiful sight. So you would have this, sh this uh, tower um, surrounded by all these uh, glimmering uh, round shields hung out the um, portals of the tower. And uh, uh, ancient Israelite women would wear headdresses now, headdresses with coins, okay, because coins were used as jewelry, still are used in jewelry uh, in the uh, Middle East. And so you'll see pictures of, for example, Arabic women with headdresses with silver coins all uh, draped down. And that was true in antiquity as well. And so when a woman was dressed with this headdress and had all these silver coins um, hanging from, um, from her hair and about her neck, then she looked like the Tower of David with all the glinting shields okay, surrounding it. So that's, um, that's one of the, uh, uh, the visual images that's, that's being used here. So in any event, he describes her uh, starting from her head uh, and moving down her body. And she's of great beauty. And then... Um, he continues, let's skip to verse 9. You have ravished my heart, my sister, my bride. You have ravished my heart with a glance of your eyes. Verse 10, how sweet is your love, my sister, my bride. See, it's very explicit here. He's wed to this woman, okay? And this, this defeats the arguments of those who say that the Song of Songs is about free love or it's about um, physical relationships outside of marriage. That's not the case. The central vision is very clearly um, between a husband and wife. He calls her my sister, which is a term of endearment, and then more explicitly, my bride. And then he describes her as a garden in verse 12. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A garden locked, a fountain sealed, okay, which is also referring to her physical integrity. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all choicest fruits, henna with nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes with all chief spices, a garden fountain, a well of living water, and flowing streams from Lebanon. Now that's not just any garden that he's describing there. That is the superlative garden. Okay? This garden has every choice fruit and spice from the ancient Near East within it. He's really describing her as nothing other than the Garden of Eden. And that's significant because the Garden of Eden, as many of you know, was the original sanctuary, the original temple, so to speak, of Israel. And thereafter in Israel's history, the tabernacle and the temple were decorated with Edenic imagery, okay, with uh, fruit trees and angels and uh, plentiful sources of water, gold, jewels, 
etc. All things that could be found in the Garden of Eden, if you look at the description of it in Genesis 2 and in Ezekiel 27 and 28. So her, her body is a garden. Her body is this sanctuary. It's, it's the holy sanctuary of God. And so filling in the blanks here on our outline, the bride's body, body is the Garden of Eden. And then after he describes her as the Garden of Eden, they come, they, they come closer to one another. Solomon and his bride approach each other within the um, bridal litter. And uh, the bride says in verse 16, Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind, blow upon my garden, which is nothing other than herself. Let its fragrance be wafted abroad. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. And then he responds, the groom responds, Solomon, I come to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gather my myrrh with my spice. I eat my honeycomb with my honey. I drink my wine with my milk. So the two, you know, she's saying, come, and he's saying, I'm coming. And they're moving <laughs> toward each other. And uh, all the parents in the audience are like, hey, I thought this was a G movie. I got to cover my kids' eyes here, you know. But then the curtain drops before anything happens, and the chorus chimes in with a very important line. The end of chapter 5, verse 1, the chorus says, Eat, O friends, and drink. Drink deeply, O lovers. And of course, at this point, um, offstage, so to speak, or behind the curtain now, there is the embrace of uh, the bride and groom. But notice that the chorus describes this as a meal. Okay describes it in, the, in culinary language, and that's going to become significant in salvation history. Okay? So that's the beautiful central scene of, the, um, of Solomon and his bride coming together at the center of the Song of Songs. It's really a vision of what's to come, and we start to back out now. We, we go back to a dream sequence. Um, in chapter 5 all the way uh, to chapter 6, verse 10. We looked at it a little bit already. Uh, it's basically the same plot as the first dream sequence. She's on her bed at night. She goes out into the city looking for her beloved. She can't find him. Um, finally, finally, she finds him, uh, and then uh, they embrace. Um, the only difference is this second dream sequence is a lot, uh, a lot more detailed, a lot more extended. In the second dream sequence, she runs into her girlfriends as she's wandering around at night in Jerusalem. Again, one of these unrealistic features. Like, hey, what you all doing here at 2 a.m. in an ancient Near Eastern capital city? Okay. Um, but they, they, uh, they want to help her find... Um, uh, okay, verse 8. They want to help her find her beloved. So... Chapter 5, 8, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, tell him that I'm sick with love. You know, so if you guys are wandering around the alleys and byways and you find my prince, you know, tell him I'm looking for him. Okay, so this is, this is what she's saying. And then they, they respond, what is your beloved more than another beloved, O fairest among women? What is your beloved more than another beloved that you should thus adjure us? Like, what's the big deal about your boyfriend, you know? And, um, <laughs> and we should look for him. And you're like, oh, he's awesome. Verse 10, my beloved is all, so she goes into a visual description. This is the only visual description of the bridegroom that we get in the Song of Songs. We get a couple of times where the bridegroom describes the uh, bride, either from head to toe or from toe to head. He'll start at the top and go down, or 
He'll give all these visual descriptions of parts of her body, but this is the only time when she describes him and she starts at his head and works her way down. So 510, my beloved is all radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. Remember that David was ruddy. So his head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside springs of water, bathed in milk, fitly set. His cheeks are like beds of spices, yielding fragrance. His lips are lilies, distilling liquid myrrh. His arms are rounded gold, set with jewels. His body is ivory work, encrusted with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns, set upon bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. Now that's a lot of imagery. Uh, anybody know where you could find all those images in one place in ancient Israel? I hear it being whispered. Come on, somebody. Yes, yes. Uh, well, I was actually pointing at Monica. But anyway, that's fine. It was answered. The temple, okay? The temple indeed. Uh, it is the temple. So the body of the bridegroom is being described like the temple. And uh, that's, that's significant. Hmm, a bridegroom whose body is the temple. I wonder where that's going to go in salvation history. Um, <laughs> But again, look at, chapter, look at verses 13, 14, and 15. His cheeks are like beds of spices, yielding fragrance. His lips are lilies, distilling liquid myrrh. His arms are rounded gold, set with jewels. His body is ivory work, encrusted with sapphires. Legs are alabaster columns, set upon bases of gold. Think of your own experience, okay? When have you ever gazed on something that fits this description? Uh, well, you're, well, you're um, you know... Well, your nose is picking up the scent of frankincense and other chief spices. Okay? Uh, in our religious experience, this sounds like nothing so much as solemn benediction with a really ornate monstrance. Gold, alabaster, jewels, etc. Okay? And that is very fitting because in benediction as well as in other forms of adoration, we are actually adoring the body of our bridegroom as we gaze upon him. And it's not so much that the way that we make monstrances or tabernacles is directly inspired by song you know, 5, 13 and following, but there's something deep within our spiritual instinct that we naturally decorate the Eucharist, which is the body of our bridegroom, with our most precious materials, with gold, with jewels, with alabaster columns, etc., with the finest materials that we have, and it comes out looking like the features and the decorations of the ancient temple and like this description of the bridegroom's body in uh, Songs chapter 5. So we move on uh, uh, from this uh, second dream sequence. Eventually, uh, she does find uh, her bridegroom, and um, they embrace for a brief time uh, together, and then she wakes up once again. And then in chapter 6, uh, verse 11, we start a daydream sequence. We start a daydream sequence where she says, the bride says, I went down to the nut orchard to look at the blossoms of the valley to see whether the vines had budded, whether the pomegranates were in bloom, before I was aware, my fancy, which means her imagination, okay, my, my imagination set me in a chariot beside my prince, okay? 
So she's going down to the nut orchard and she's daydreaming and she sees her prince drive up in his chariot, you know, and she jumps in and they roar off, okay? I don't know what it is about guys and means of transportation, <laughs> but, you know, nowadays it's like a Mustang convertible or, you know, he's got a Camaro or something like that, a red Camaro, and <laughs> hop in, baby, you know, <laughs> drive off. If you ever watch Jane Austen movies, every one of these guys has a barouche. He's got a barouche, you know? These, you know, fancy uh, enclosed uh, chariots that was, I guess, all the rage in 1804, you know? <laughs> gonna take you away, this barouche. So, nothing ever changes. So her prince dries up in his chariot. She hops in and roars off, and the girlfriends say, Return, return, O Shulamite, return, O turn, that we may look upon you. Um, and then they're, they're riding in the chariot, and so uh, Solomon begins to describe her once again. How graceful are your feet in sandals, O queenly maiden! Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand, uh, etc. And he works his way now from... Um, from the feet up, uh, including the classic line, your belly is a heap of wheat. That's, uh, that's what I like to whisper in my wife's ear. You know? <laughs> She's doing dishes there at the kitchen sink. I sigh love, you know, kind of do that back hug thing. Hey, baby, your belly is a heap of wheat. <laughs> that's just, uh, that lights her fires. After eight children. Okay. So, it goes on, it goes on. Uh, uh, let's see. All the way down to eight verses, three and four. Oh, that his left hand were under my head. Oh, that his right hand embraced me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you stir not up nor awaken the loved one until she please. That's at the end of this daydream sequence, and, and suddenly you realize, oh, that wasn't real, okay? That was, um, you know, that was a, a flash forward or a flash back or something, or just a flash. Um, that, uh, that was her imagination, okay? Because at the, at the end of the whole narrative, she's saying, oh, that his left hand were under my head and his right hand embraced me, and meaning that it's not, you know? Her, his left hand's not there, his right hand's not there. Um, so that was just, a, that was a, a, in that case, a, dr a daydream sequence, and she was enjoying it and doesn't want to be waken up from it. So then we, we, we launch into the concluding colloquy from chapter 8, verse 5 to the end. Uh, who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning upon her beloved? Under the apple tree I awakened you. Okay, so now everybody's awake, no more dream sequences. There's some, po there's some poetic lines about love. Set me as a seal upon your heart, set as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death, or you can translate that love is stronger than death. Jealousy as cruel as a grave, its flashes are flashes of fire, a most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love, etc. Um, uh, and then it concludes um, uh, with some statements about the little sister and... Um, uh, the bride boasts of, of her uh, physical integrity as she enters into marriage, literally in verse 10. 
Um, she says, I am a wall and my breasts were like towers, um, which is metaphorical language, meaning she's had no other um, uh, physical experience besides um, her, uh, her bridegroom. Um, uh, she's coming into the marriage relationship with her physical integrity intact, and so that's very highly valued. Uh, chastity is highly valued in uh, the Song of Songs. Um, and then there's an interchange about Solomon and the vineyard, which is all metaphorical. And then the Song of Songs concludes in these two verses, 13 and 14. The groom speaks one last time. O oh, you who dwell in the gardens, my companions are listening for your voice. Let me hear it. And that probably means that the groom has arrived now at the bride's home with his companions, that is, his uh, groomsmen. Okay? And this would be a torch procession, which would arrive at night to collect the, the bride and take her to the place of the wedding ceremony. So, O oh, you who dwell in the gardens, my companions are listening for your voice. Let me hear it. This is done at night. They would come for torches, as it were, looking for the bride. And so they come, they're looking around for her. You know, they might play a little hide-and-seek to make it a little more fun. Uh, but then they collect her and they take her away. So that's the scene at the end. And then she calls out in the darkness, Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or like a young stag upon the mountains of spices. In other words, here I am, hurry up, you know. I'm in the garden, come and get me. So it, it ends. It ends on a note of longing. So filling in the, bl the blanks here, the epilogue is this concluding colloquy. It's, the epilogue stresses the importance of premarital chastity uh, in verses 8 through 10, if you understand the metaphors that are being used there. And so at the, by the end of the book, the book consists mostly in dreams of the bride's upcoming union and it ends on a note of longing, and the predominant mood of the book is longing. Okay, so you've had all these visions, you've had daydreams and dreams um, throughout the book, and at the end of the book, the bridegroom has arrived with his groomsmen carrying their torches, and they're looking for the bride, and she calls out, here I am, uh, hurry up and find me, uh, and it stops. So that's it. The, the wedding never actually takes place in the book. And so this, uh, this book was read by the Jews um, as a Messianic book in anticipation of the bridegroom coming, the David who was to come. And the Apostle John was a good Jew. And the Apostle John had probably read the Song of Songs as a book of Messianic expectation all his life until he came to know Jesus and became his apostle and then lived a long time as an apostle preaching about Jesus after Jesus' ascension, during which time John had to reflect on all the things that Jesus had said and did during his earthly ministry. And at the end of his life, John writes a gospel in which John highlights ways in which Jesus fulfilled aspects of the Song of Songs, the expectation of the Song of Songs. Thinking of the, songs of so the Song of Songs as a book of uh, Messianic prophecy. So the, the Gospel of John has a lot of parallel with the Song of Songs. After all, the Gospel of John opens uh, Jesus' ministry with a wedding. You know, the wedding at Cana in chapter 2. 
where the only identified characters are Jesus and his mother, the new Adam and the new Eve, on the seventh day of the gospel, if you count the days of the gospel. And that's significant. So Jesus had a wedding, a wedding in which he performs the duty of the bridegroom, the duty of the bridegroom being to provide wine at the wedding ceremony. Uh, the, the, the real bridegroom at that wedding uh, provided only a small amount of poor quality wine, which ran out very quickly. And then Jesus produces 180 gallons of fine French cabriolet uh, for everybody. Uh, so much so and of such high quality that the, uh, that the best man you know, calls the bridegroom over to reprimand him that he's keeping the stuff in the back room uh, and letting everybody get sloshed before bringing out his, his, uh, his top shelf uh, goods. So um, the, song, the, the, the Gospel of John opens with Jesus at a wedding. In the following chapter, John the Baptist calls Jesus the bridegroom outright. And then the chapter after that, chapter 4, there's a whole uh, betrothal scene between Jesus and the woman of Samaria at a well. We can't go into that, but um, it's full of uh, betrothal images from um, a different... Uh, uh, different scenes of meeting a woman at a well uh, from Genesis and Exodus where uh, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses all meet their future spouses at a well. And then um, there are other nuptial themes in the book, but uh, I want to pick up in Passion Week in John chapter 12 with the anointing at Bethany. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those at table with them. Mary took a pound of costly ointment of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the ointment. Now, these are allusions to the Song of Songs because nard, which was an extremely costly uh, nuptial perfume. It's the kind of perfume that you might buy for your wedding day. It's only mentioned in the rest of the Bible, outside of the Gospel of John, in the Song of Songs. We saw one of the passages in uh, chapter 4 where, um, the where uh, Solomon describes his bride as being a garden in which there's plentiful nard. Okay? So nard is only mentioned in the Song of Songs where it's one of the perfumes that the bodies of Solomon and his bride are um, uh, anointed with. And here Mary anoints Jesus with this nuptial perfume, marking him out as the bridegroom David who was to come. Interestingly, however, Jesus takes this perfume, this nard perfume, and he says, you know what, this is more appropriate for my burial. So in chapter, in verse 7, he says, uh, in response to um, Judas, who's complaining about the waste of money, Jesus says, let her alone, let her keep it for the day of my burial. The poor you have always with you, but you do not always have me. So Jesus takes this nuptial image of the nard, and he says, you know what, save the rest of it, for my burial, that's where it's more appropriate. Somehow this anointing as a bridegroom uh, is better served when he is being placed in the tomb. That's very curious, but we'll see that in just a moment. In fact, we'll see it right now. Let's turn to uh, chapter 19. 
where we have the account of Jesus' burial beginning in verse 38. Leading up to the burial, there's already been several um, nuptial images that have been applied to Jesus on the cross during his passion in chapter 19. For example, in chapter 19, verse 2, they plate a crown of thorns and place it on his head. That is interesting because on the wedding day uh, of high-ranking Israelites, they would wear a crown, as we, as we see in Psalm 45 and as we see in uh, the Song of Songs uh, at the end of uh, chapter 3, the crown that is placed on Solomon's head on his wedding day. So Jesus is wearing a crown which could evoke uh, the context of a wedding. He is stripped of his garments as a bridegroom is stripped as he approaches his bride uh, on, the, uh, on the day of the wedding. Uh, we see that uh, in uh, verse 23. Um, uh, he's placed on the cross with the crown and in his revealed state. Um, and he's offered wine to drink on the cross when he says, I thirst. By the way, when he says, I thirst, that, that's, an, that's a scriptural allusion that goes all the way back to Genesis 24 when the request for a drink was the divine sign to know who would be the right bride for the patriarch Isaac. Okay? So this, this request for a drink is linked with the search for the bride at several key places in Scripture. He says, I thirst. They give him the wine to drink. And when he drinks the wine, he says, uh, it is consummated in Greek. Okay? And the word that he uses, tetelestai, has the same range of meaning as consummatum in Latin and consummated in Greek, excuse me, in English. Uh, which includes a reference to the consummation of uh, the wedding ritual, um, of, the, of the marriage rites. Um, and there's further imagery in, this, in the piercing of, there, there's nuptial imagery in the piercing of Christ's side, as St. Augustine points out. We won't go into it in depth here. But then in verse 38, after this, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him leave. So he came and took his body. Nicodemus also, who had first come to him by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. Okay? Now myrrh and aloes, like nard, are nuptial perfumes. Highly expensive, fragrant substances sold by the ounce. Okay? So um, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, I went to um, the, uh, the fine establishment that I use whenever I'm interested in purchasing luxury goods, Walmart, <laughs> and um, went to the perfume rack just to get an idea, you know, if I wanted to max out my... Uh, my expenditure, how, how much could I spend, you know, on cologne and perfume, you know. So first to look at the guy's side and down at the bottom, there's something called Axe, which I would never wear. But yeah, I mean, I'm going to wear something named after, you know, a woodworking tool or something, you know. No, okay, I'm not going to do that. You know, and it, 
that's like really cheap, like five bucks for a big bottle, you know, like the economy size bottle. And you work your way up to like Stetson or something like that, and that's like $25 for five ounces or something. Now, on, on the women's side, you can get a lot more expensive. You know, you start off with uh, stuff by pop singers, and then you, you work your way up. And as you work your way up the rack, there's increasing amounts of French on the bottle. So you get to the top, and there's no English left on the box. You know, it's très sûr by Lancôme. You know, it's eau de toilette. And you're looking at it like, I can't understand any of this stuff. I'm, I'm assuming it's perfume. It better be good, because I paid a lot of money for it. You know, so that's like 40 bucks an ounce for, um, for you know, très sûr by Lancôme. You take that home. I hope it's perfume in here. I hope that's what all this French says. So this is, this is you know, ex perfumes are very expensive. So myrrh and aloes is like, you know, it's like uh, expensive perfume, like stuff that, you know, is in those little brochures in the back of the airplane seat, you know, they pull out and, you know, duty-free, but it doesn't make any difference if it's duty-free. You're paying so much for it already. Uh, you know, who cares? It doesn't have tax on it, but... Um, so a hundred pounds of this, okay? Can you imagine a hundred pounds of stuff that's sold by the ounce, you know? Chanel number five in the five-gallon keg. Yeah. <laughs> Open the tab, okay. Glug, 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 all over his body. Glug, 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 glug. Okay, that keg's empty. Next keg, you know? A hundred pounds of myrrh and aloes. So those of you that, uh, you know, ha have had me for, uh, you know, New Testament or working through the, the Gospel of John with me, you know, this, this fits into the theme of abundance, right? That, that, flows, that, uh, that uh, flows throughout the Gospel of John. You know, the 12 baskets left over after the feeding of the 5,000, the 180 gallons of wine at the wedding at Cana, etc. So Jesus is the superlative bridegroom. See, myrrh and aloes are only mentioned in three places in the Old Testament. Psalm 45, which is the royal wedding psalm, it mentions myrrh and aloes. Proverbs 7, which is a romantic scene with a young man, and the Song of Songs. Those are the only three places in the Old Testament that mention myrrh and aloes uh, together. All three, strongly nuptial contexts. Why these nuptial perfumes on the body of Christ? Because his burial is the quintessential act by which he gives his body to his bride. And the tomb is a type of the Blessed Mother and also a type of the church. Okay? They took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices as was the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Understand? It's a virginal tomb. So it's a type of the virginal womb in which he took flesh. Now he is placing his body in the virginal womb of the earth. There's a strong connection there too as well. Can't go into it. But this is also the gift of himself to the, to the church. The church which, like the Blessed Mother, is all, always simultaneously virgin and mother and takes the flesh of her bridegroom into her womb and gives birth to Christ in the world, in every new believer who comes up out of the waters of baptism, the nuptial uh, bath, which also is the, 
the bath of birth for the new Christian. So because it was the Jewish day of preparation, as the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. So the burial of Jesus is strongly connected to images from the Song of Songs. It is his great giving of his body for his um, bride. And then we have the scene with Mary Magdalene. And this is the climax. The resurrection. Let's uh, look on the back here. We have Song of Songs chapter 3, 1 through 5, which we read earlier. And we have John 20, verse 1, and then the continuation 11 through 18. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then we get John and Peter running to the tomb and that whole interaction. And then it continues. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord. Now, you know, kurios, Lord here in Greek, also is used for husband. So, that's not what she means here, but a bystander listening to her could interpret her to be talking about my, my husband. So, uh, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Saying this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom do you seek? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Which, of course, is completely unrealistic. How is she going to carry away this dead body? She's probably all of 110 pounds, you know. And she's going to carry away this big, you know, 180-pound corpse, okay? But that's just the irrationality of her love speaking. Tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned to him and said in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not hold me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And so she went to the disciples and said, I have seen the Lord. Now in this whole sequence, look at what she has just done. She has experienced in real time, so to speak, the dream sequence of the bride of the song because she gets up while it is still night as the bride does. And she goes out into the city to look for her loved one, but she cannot find him. And she comes across the watchman because the angels in Jewish culture were called the watchmen of heaven or the watchers of heaven. So Mary Magdalene comes to the heavenly watchers or watchmen. She speaks to them. And as soon as she passes them or interacts with them, she turns around. And just as in the Song of Songs, scarcely had she passed them when she found him who her soul loves. She finds Jesus. And then... Jesus says, do not hold me, which of course implies that what is she doing? She's holding on to him. She's embracing him as soon as she finds him. And then he says he needs to part. Uh, he cannot 
cannot stay on this earth in, uh, in that earthly form. So in, in the resurrection of Christ, Mary Magdalene, who is a type and an image of every one of us, myself, each of you seated here, all of us, Christ has come to be the bridegroom of our soul. And all of us have this experience when we come to encounter Jesus of finding him to be the one who loves us more than any other person, the one for whom we were made, the one to whom we were, spoke, we were intended to enter into communion. And Mary Magdalene is the type of each one of us as she discovers in the risen Christ the bridegroom of her soul. And John, in subtle images, that only those who have ears to hear and eyes to see can recognize, paints Jesus with bridegroom imagery throughout his passion into his burial and then to his resurrection. That is how the Song of Songs is connected to Holy Week. And so as we prepare this Holy Week for the Triduum, um, where we recall to mind his anointing, uh, the gift of himself, his body and blood at the Last Supper in the Eucharist, the gift of himself on the cross and in his burial, and finally, uh, the return uh, of himself to us through his resurrection. Let's meditate on this great faith of ours that speaks to us of a God who is not some impersonal force who will absorb our personhood someday, God who is not some heavenly master who will reward us with some kind of Disneyland for our faithful service in the by and by, um, a God who is none of those things, but a God who loves us intensely, each one of us individually, who, who is a personal God and who made us as persons to reflect his image um, and who intends himself as our final end the one in whom we're going to experience the delight um, that our heart has been longing for um, since we are placed on this earth. Let's go to him now in prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the beauties of your scripture. And we thank you for Jesus, the lover of our souls, our spouse, the one who does not love us with eros, but loves us with agape. The one who loves us with chesed love, with covenant fidelity. The one whose love is not here uh, this day uh, and dissipates at some time in the future. But the one whose love for us is till death do us part and beyond that because his love is stronger than death. His love never parts from us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the love shown to us in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we approach the celebration of the Triduum, uh, may the reading of your word and the meditation on your sacred scripture cause us to fall ever more deeply in love with Jesus. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. And the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.